You're listening to a Garden City Chapel podcast. For a complete list of podcasts, visit our website at www.gardencitychapel.com. Amen. Thank you, Russell and Christy. Invite you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, I've been preaching through the book of Acts, and I know for some of you say, well, I'm just here today, what good is that going to do me to know you're preaching through the book of Acts? If you'd like to hear the entire series, you can do that on our website and listen to kind of weeks that have gone before and weeks leading up to this, and then after this, if you're not able to be back next week. I want to start by just reading the first few verses from Acts 19, 11 uh, through 16. Acts 19, verses 11 through 16. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons were even carried from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who were from the, went from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches." Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them. So they had fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now, I don't know about you, but you probably don't have a lot of experience with visible signs of evil spirits, perhaps. Uh, how we did walk in this morning with a Gamecock shirt on. But other than that, <laughs> so, <laughs> that was just a little joke, a little humor. He actually said, I wore this for you, it was patent. So it's, it's a pretty shirt. It's almost red for Georgia. Other than that, uh, <laughs> now I'm really in trouble. I have no fans in the room. <laughs> No, you probably don't have a lot of experience with that. And as I was studying this passage, I thought about some of my own experience. And I don't have a lot either. I had a a phone call one time from a national ministry that said, would you be available to talk to a couple on the phone who are trying to get out of this satanic cult? And and when phone calls like that come, you kind of think, why are you calling me? You know, I'm not listed in the phone book under exorcist or anything like that. And yet I spent about six months dealing with this couple that was trying to get out from the influence of this cult that they had been a part of. In fact, their lives were threatened. My life was threatened. Uh, I remember going out to start my car in the mornings, and right before I turned the switch, I thought, what if somebody's put a bomb in my car? You know, I've watched too much television. And uh, so if there's any verse you need to know before you leave here today, it is this. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. And it basically says this. You are children of God. You have overcome the world. And here's the part you need to know. For greater is he that is in you that he that is in the world. Studying this passage, though, this week, I got an email that I want to read to you. This is from some friends of mine, and in, in, uh, they actually live, they're based out of Guatemala, and uh, they, were, they travel, though, because of disaster release, they, relief. They travel all over the Caribbean, and so they were in Haiti. And I just want to read her email exactly the way she sent it, the part asking for prayer. She said, One day I was invited to go to visit a voodoo priest that had made a decision for Jesus. I had no clue what to expect. It was vastly different than the Mayan priest and rituals that I was accustomed to. The small building was dark and dank. 
It was filled with fetishes of all kinds. Some were bottles wrapped with colored string with mirrors on them. Others were doll chairs with dead fish tied to them. And my feet was a human skull. On the walls were pictures that looked like Bible pictures. He told the missionary volunteers and myself he was ready. He began a process of taking all the fetishes and things from the room outside to put in a fire pit. He handed me a baby's coffin and motioned for me to put it on the pile outside. He had lots of human bones that he added as well. With all the neighbors silently watching, the priest started the pile on fire. He told me that he had bought the coffin and bones at the graveyard. Pray for this man. He's made decisions before to follow Jesus, but the pull of Satan has been so strong. Pray for the missionaries that are discipling him. Pray that he will depend on Jesus and turn from his evil ways. Voodoo is not just TV hype. It is real in Haiti. Let's pray. Father, this... Email from some friends down in Haiti is asking for prayer. And God, even this passage that we look at this morning demonstrates the power of God over such things. And so, God, we confess this morning that greater is he that is in us. Greater is Jesus than he that is in the world, Satan. And so, God, we confess that, we proclaim that this morning, and we do pray for this voodoo priest ex-priest in Haiti, that, God, he would have a genuine relationship with you where he literally turns his back on all of those things. And God experiences the freshness of new life through Jesus Christ. We pray this even now as we look at this passage. God, help us to understand the power of the gospel at work in the first century world. In Christ's name, amen. Now, I share that to set up basically... This encounter, this, this evidence, first of all, of conflicting powers. I think we all recognize that there's good in the world and there's evil in the world. And let me just spell a, a, a myth that's kind of out there. Some people think there's a little bit of evil and all good and a little bit of good and all evil. That's a lie. Because God is good and there is no evil whatsoever in God. I know, you know, people have those yin-yang symbols and all that kind of stuff. That's kind of what that means. And that kind of sounds really cool and it looks good on your surfboard. But it's not the truth. There's not a little bit of evil in all good because if there's a little evil there, it's not good. I think we've kind of accepted that in our Western mentality that, you know, well, it's okay. You know, because, hey, we have ivory soap that's only 99 and 94 one-hundredths percent pure. Well, it's not pure if there's something in there that's not pure, right? It's impure. So God is good, but I want you to see these, this uh, evidence of conflicting powers. Through Paul, and we've seen the gospel spread all over the known world of that time. He's now in Asia. He's, he's in Ephesus, the town of Ephesus that you read about other places in Scripture, specifically Ephesians, but also in Revelation. And we hear about Ephesus, and he was performing these extraordinary miracles. People were being healed. In fact, people were being healed of diseases and, and Luke, who writes Acts, specifically mentions not just diseases, but even evil spirits. He separates the two, which tells us, first of all, that not all disease comes from evil spirits. But understand who Luke is. Luke, who wrote the book of Luke, who wrote, also wrote the book of Acts, was a doctor. He was a physician. And so for Luke to say that this was genuine, miraculous healing where people were being healed of diseases, they were also being healed of evil spirits. He was doing that from a medical standpoint that I imagine was somewhat skeptical of, of people who claimed to be healers. 
And yet that was happening. In fact, the power was so great that they could even take these linen cloths that that Paul would use on his journeys to, to literally wipe the sweat from his face or the apron that he might use to gird up his robe when he was working. They would take those to people and even people were being healed just because of the power that that came off of those garments. Now, you say, does that still happen today? And I know there's people that will sell you, you know, prayer cloths and that kind of stuff on television and, you know, lifestyle cutouts of themselves and just tell you to touch the TV and you'll be healed. Uh, I promise you need to be careful which part of the TV you touch because if you touch the part at the back, uh, you may be healed permanently. But anyway... So all of that, you know, you think, why were these things happening? Well, we saw it happen in Christ's life. We see it happen in Paul's life and even Peter's life that people were being healed. And these are called and referred to as attesting miracles. They didn't have the written New Testament yet. This was breaking new ground. So throughout that first century world, God was allowing these miracles. In fact, God was causing these miracles to take place to attest to the fact that this person is authentic. This person is genuine. But isn't it interesting the way it's worded? God was performing miracles through Paul. Most of the healers that I hear about today, it's all about them. They get the credit for it. Look what I've done. Listen, Paul wasn't doing anything. Paul was just being obedient and God was healing people through Paul. Well, that was taking place. Listen, any time that Christians are doing ministry in the name of God, it upsets the enemy. And the enemy will try try to thwart any kind of ministry that you're doing. And often, Satan's one of his favorite modes of thwarting ministry is to counterfeit it. So what does he do? He has these exorcists that were going around chanting incantations and oaths over people, also trying to do the same thing. In fact, we see it back during even Jesus' ministry. Read the, the Gospel of Luke, where people were amazed that when Jesus cast out demons, they really were cast out. And when Jesus healed people, they really were healed. said they were amazed. Why do you think they were amazed? I think it's because they weren't used to seeing it. They were used to hearing people claim to do it. They just weren't used to seeing it be very effective. And so Satan had these uh, people, these exorcists that were going around. In fact, they're called in this passage Jewish exorcists um, because I guess they were claiming to be, you know, the sons of this Jewish priest. And so these seven men go up and they attempt to do what they had seen Paul do. They attempt, they attempt to do what they had heard that Paul had attempted to do. And it, y'all, I don't know if you find humor in Scripture, but this one's kind of funny to me. They go up and seven of these brothers are, are chanting these incantations over this person who's sick. And basically they said, we are casting this evil spirit out in the name of Jesus, the one who Paul preaches. Not a Jesus that we know, but the one that Paul knows. We're going to use his name. And then here's what the demon speaks out of the man. The demon says, I know Jesus, and I'm acquainted with Paul. Who are you? In other words, you know, in our war room, in the demonic war room, we've talked a lot about Jesus. We've talked about his power. We've even talked about Paul because we've been trying very hard to thwart his ministry. Paul had been beaten. Paul had been put in jail. Paul had even been stoned. And I mean, literally rocks thrown at him until they thought he was dead. And none of that was effective. And so they kept coming up with plan A, plan B. They were down to, I don't know, plan F by now. And bottom line, they said, we know about Jesus. We're intimately acquainted with him, and we're real acquainted with this Apostle Paul. We've never heard of you. So don't be naming a name that you don't know. 
Bottom line, you have no authority. The demons are speaking. You have no authority in Jesus' name or Paul's name because you don't know them. You're not of them. You don't honor and worship the same God that they're talking about. So even the demons recognized a charlatan and a phony. And here's what happens. It says that the demons jumped on this man. And we see this in Jesus' ministry when the, the, the demons would throw people into convulsions. It would, it would cause them to hurt themselves and cut themselves and all of these influences of this demonic activity. And yet the evil spirit recognizes that this man doesn't have anything to do with God. And so he performs, the evil spirit performs a reverse exorcism. Normally an exorcism is when an exorcist casts demons out of a person. Well, this demon cast these people out of the house. In fact, they left naked and hurting. They were bruised. In fact, I think just to add to their humiliation, they had to flee without their clothes. So they were beaten to a pulp. And keep in mind, this was one against seven. This was these seven brothers are beat up by this demon-possessed man. Why? Because they had no power. They had no power in the face of evil. There's a verse in James, James 4, 7. And I've shared this in this chapel before, so if you've heard this before, bear with me. Most of you haven't heard me say this, but I, I was a youth pastor for a number of years, and I had a phone call one day from a guy who said, I need you to go with me over to one of my teenagers' house, one of the kids in my youth group, because he's claiming that his room is demon-possessed. And again, I thought, why do I get these calls? <laughs> but I said, okay. So it's a good friend of mine. He was a youth pastor in a neighboring town. So I went with him, went over to this guy's house, and we got over there. And sure enough, I mean, his room was so dark. And I don't mean just the light. I mean, everything on the walls, just a lot. There was just a lot of demon stuff in there but this guy had professed faith in jesus christ and i said you know you probably need to get rid of some of these posters and you probably need to learn to pray and maybe sing some praise songs some worship music because satan don't hang around when you're worshiping god and then i said let me quote a verse for you i want you to memorize this verse james 4 7 and before i could say it the youth pastor quoted the verse resist the devil and he'll flee from you and i said yeah i used to misquote it like that too if you know James 4, 7, there's more to the verse than resist the devil and he'll flee from you. I was driving down the road in one of our campgrounds. There's two campgrounds locally that put Bible verses up on their sign. And, and this has been a couple years ago. They put the verse up. James 4, 7. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Bout had a wreck. Turn it in there. I wanna, who put this sign up? Because you've got to fix it. What does James 4, 7 say? Submit, therefore, to God. If you don't submit to God... You have no authority to resist the devil. You have no power to resist the devil. What was the difference in these Jewish pretend exorcists? They had never submitted, therefore, to God. And so they had no authority to name his name. They had no authority to even mention the name of Paul. Because you're not of him. And the demons knew that. James 4, 7, submit therefore to God under His umbrella of authority. I'm a believer. I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ, so I'm operating under the authority of God. When you're there, you can resist the devil. And what does the Bible say? He has to flee from you. Have you ever run from the devil? All right, I'll share something that's embarrassing. My office at, at a previous church was down in the basement of the church. And if I ever had to go there at night, it was always dark. And I got the heebie-jeebies going in there at night. 
I realize I'm a grown man, but I'm just being honest with you, okay? Anybody know what the heebie-jeebies are? You know what that is? It's kind of a Latin word meaning frightened to death. And so I went down, you know, I'd go in there and for some reason I'd catch myself trying to hurry and get out of there because I thought somebody was around me. I kind of thought like, man, it's dark down here. What if the devil jumps on me or something like that? And so, I mean, that's just what I'm thinking. And so I'd catch myself kind of running out of there, trying to get out of there in a hurry and almost afraid to look back. In fact, the doors were glass doors and I'd always have to turn around and lock the glass doors. And I'd almost be afraid to look through the glass doors at like I thought there was going to be some dude in a pitchfork and a you know red tail and a suit and all that. Maybe a Gamecock emblem. I don't know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't know. I keep looking at Howie. <laughs> Howie's never going to come back. Anyway, I'll try not to bring that up again. I'm sorry. It just hit my mind. I had to say it. So I'm, I'm getting this picture like of Howie running down the hallway, you know. And uh, here's what I started doing. I started saying, you know what? I'm not running out of here anymore. I'm just going to sing. So I started singing stuff like Jesus loves me. And then the thought crossed my mind, what if somebody really is down here that's just like cleaning up or something? They're hearing me who can't sing going through thinking, that dude has lost it. Well, people that know me know that I've lost it anyway. But here's the bottom line with this this evidence of this conflict between these two powers. Paul is casting out demons through the power of Jesus Christ. These exorcists are using the name, they're using the words, everything appears on the surface to be the same. But it's not the same. What's missing? The power of God. Let's look then at at the true repentance that takes place and the evidence of true repentance. Let me continue reading verses 19 and following. Actually, verse 17. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Here's what's happening because of this power of God on display. People are repenting. The word repentance means to turn. It means a change of mind or a change of direction. These are people who had been worshiping the enemy. These are people who had these books that had all of these stories and incantations and oaths that you could pronounce over things. And it said they were repenting even to the point where they were bringing this stuff similar to this Haiti priest that was just burning it on heaps. Now, when you burn something, what are you saying? I don't want this anymore. I think the most genuine, true evidence of repentance you can have is when you take stuff and say, get this out of my life. And so they literally were bringing these books and they counted it up, 50,000 pieces of silver, and you're saying, well, what, what would the equivalent of that be in our day and time? Well, the piece of silver was a drop money. It was typically a day's wage for a full-grown man working all day. That would be what he made. So 50,000 days wages. Somebody did the math. Over $6 million in today's money. You think they were serious about repenting? You think they were serious about turning their back on these evil practices they had been a part of? Absolutely. What do you think that does to the enemy when we get that serious about turning from that? He turns up the heat. It makes him mad. We're going to see a little bit more in the last point of that. But here's the good news. This message of the gospel is spreading so far and, and wide 
that people are saying, I don't want any part of my old life. The Bible says if if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old things have passed away. Men and women, let me ask you, are there still some things in your life you're clinging to that God is saying, burn that? I don't necessarily mean you've got to go home and literally start a fire and burn it. But here's what God would want you to do. Put that away. Put that aside. That's part of your old life. Don't play with that anymore. You're not bound to that anymore. So we see them burning things. They're burning bridges, man. They can't go back. Six million dollars worth of supplies. They just burn because they don't want to play with it anymore. They don't want to be a part of that life anymore. And the reason they didn't, they knew there was no power in that. But there's power in the name of Jesus who they've come to know. And so as genuine evidence of repentance, they burned all that. In fact, in case you're wondering, there's a verse in 1 John. Jot this down. 1 John 3.10 says this. It's obvious who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not a child of God. Nor anyone who does not love his brother. What's that saying? John is saying that the evidence is there. If you want to know, hey, am I a believer or not? Or is this spirit of God or not? If you're not practicing righteousness, in other words, if the habit of your life is not becoming more like Christ, then there's a problem. Does it mean you'll never sin again? No, but it means the habit of your life is towards righteousness. And when you do mess up, there's conviction there. God disciplines you and you understand that because you're becoming more like Christ. If you're living in sin and you're not experiencing the discipline of God over that, you don't know God. You may say you're a Christian, but you can't be because it's contrary to Scripture. There will be evidence of Jesus' activity in your life. And then the last thing, this last encounter that Paul has, just briefly, verses 23 and following. Paul has sent a couple of his cohorts on ahead of him. He intends to eventually get to Rome. But he stays in Asia for a little bit longer, and it says, About that time there occurred no small disturbance among the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, This Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours falls into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the whole world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. Real briefly, what's going on? Paul encounters this guy named Demetrius. He's a silversmith by trade. means he's a beater of silver. And he employed a bunch of people making these replicas of Artemis or Diana's temple. Artemis is the Greek name for the Roman god Diana. In fact, I have a picture, Mike. Do we have that picture of this is what Diana's temple would have looked like? That's kind of an artist's rendering of it. The ruins are still there, but the temple took... Hundreds of years, like 220 years, to ultimately build this. It was destroyed in one day. In fact, the day that Alexander the Great was born, this temple was destroyed. 
It was rebuilt, and then Nero plundered it. And so what's, what's there today are just the columns and some of the ruins. But this was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I want you to keep that in mind for what's coming. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And what they would do is you would come to this to worship this goddess, Artemis or Diana. But if you couldn't take this home with you, what you would take home is one of these silver replicas. And I imagine they were pretty expensive. And so this Demetrius was making a lot of money making these silver replicas that you would take home for household worship. And so he's upset that the word of the gospel is spreading all over the world. And so he calls together all these craftsmen. And I won't take time to unpack every verse, but the last one is this. He's upset about it. They've lost a lot of profit. And you get to verse 27. I want you to see three things in closing. The, the weakness. I want you to see just the impotence, the weakness, the powerlessness of that kind of idolatry. Because he's basically saying it's up to us to protect our God. Because if we don't do something about this, our trade will fall into disrepute. We're going to lose business. People are not going to be coming to us to buy these household idols anymore. We're going to lose money over it. And people are going to kind of, we're not going to be reputable businessmen anymore. Second thing he says is, in fact, the temple is going to be regarded as worthless. Keep in mind, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And he's saying, if this gospel keeps spreading, if we don't do something about this, Paul is preaching this, our temple's not going to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world anymore. It's, it's going to be worthless. It won't be worth anything. You could make the finest replica of it in the world. Nobody's going to buy it. And then catch the last thing. In fact, it could be even so bad that this great goddess that we think everybody worships is going to be dethroned from her magnificence. Folks, I just got to say, you don't have a lot of magnificence if you're dependent on man to keep you on the throne. See, God's on the throne. Whether you know it or not, whether you believe it or not, whether you agree with it or not, there's nothing you can do with your hands to keep him there and nothing you can do with your hands to take him off. He is God. And he is enthroned. And he is magnificent. He does have all glory. And so these people are so afraid they're going to lose money. They're so afraid the temple's going to be worthless. And they're so afraid that this goddess that they had worshipped would lose her luster. Aren't you glad that we don't worship that? So let me ask you this morning as we close. Have you ever come to a place where you worship the God who's not served by human hands? Demetrius was so upset because Paul was going around saying, these idols you make with your hands, these gods you make with your hands, they're not gods at all. Folks, if you can make it, if you can create it, it's of you, not of God. Here's the good news. Someone said, idols today don't just reside on the shelf, they reside more in the self. And so you may not have a silver statue at home that you worship, but I would say this, anything in your life, that is vying to take God's place is an idol. And I encourage you today to get rid of it. Whether it's something you can hold physically with your hands or it's just an idea, if it's taking the place of God, get rid of it. Let's pray together. Bow your heads. Father, thank you for the truth that we see in this passage. And God, to acknowledge that, yes, Artemis was losing her magnificence.
this town of Ephesus, this hotbed of the occult, was being turned upside down. People were coming face to face to encounter a living God who really did have power and wasn't dependent upon men, but was able to affect the lives of men. God, that's the God that we worship. So as we leave this place today, God, you deal with our hearts. Lord, is there anything, anything in our life that is seeking to be placed on the throne? Or would we confess that God is God alone and that there is none like Him and He is worthy of all of our worship because that's the God that truly does have all the glory. That's the God whose name we pray in.